Hey everyone! This episode, I thought I would take a look at an, into an update on our situation with potential vaccine boosters. Now, obviously, the pandemic isn't over yet. Cases are rising in a lot of places in Canada and USA, and there's still some massive outbreaks around the world. Uh, with the Delta variant spreading more potently than any previous variant and all that. So boosters have become a topic of conversation as a potential way to curb the next wave. So when we had Andrew Casey from Biotech Canada on the podcast, he discussed how we will likely need boosters down the line to keep the pandemic at bay as new variants arrive. And those could come from companies beyond those that made the original vaccines. So that's like companies like Canada's Medicago or India's Covaxin, uh, Covaxin getting their technologies in on the action. Even Fabian Paquette from Pfizer hinted at this potential need in the future when he came on the show. So it's definitely something that is being widely considered. So for now, the current vaccines and their dosage have been proven effective against the current variants of the virus, including the Delta variant. So there should not be a massive rush to get a booster in your arm. However, that's not stopped a lot of people from hunting down a third dose, especially in the USA. Because of their vaccine surplus and the loose tracking of who has already had their two doses, people are finding it pretty easy to get a third dose of the vaccine. There are a lot of key opinion leaders in healthcare advocating for it, and there's a lot of mixing and matching going on for vaccines. So uh, a lot of people are, are, have been getting that third dose in America. And listen, we here at the Healthcare Hub podcast are obviously very pro-vaccine, but boosters have not really been recommended by the FDA or Health Canada yet, not even for emergency use. So I think, I think there would be uh, far better ways to use our vaccines at the moment. And vaccine makers are saying the vaccine effectiveness wears off after a certain amount of time, so boosters will be helpful at some point. But this week, the World Health Organization called for everyone to hold off on boosters until at least the end of September since they have a goal of getting 10% of every country's population vaccinated by then. This comes after they found that for high-income countries, around 100 doses have been administered for every 100 people, while in low-income countries, uh, they've only been able to administer about 1.5 doses per 100 people, which works out to less than one fully vaccinated person per 100 people. Uh, so that's not good. And when you think about it, the pandemic will have a hard time of ever fully going away with this massive spread happening in Africa and Southeast Asia if it, that continues unaddressed. So, like, I want to get back to 100% normal life as much as anyone else. But when we look at this from a health equity perspective, it's not very intuitive for us to be pushing for a third dose in our cushy first world countries when the virus is still running wild globally because those massive spreads are just going to continue making new variants uh, just like a factory just pumping out new variants and this is going to be hard to get rid of. So if we start getting the worldwide distribution of the vaccine sorted out at some point, there are some balls rolling for boosters in the future. The FDA is fast tracking the review of the effectiveness of extra vaccine doses as we speak. But overall, the experts and health authorities are saying we should worry about vaccinating the unvaccinated before we extra vaccinate the vaccinated for now. And I would tend to agree with that. What are your thoughts, Abhinav? Yeah, Tyler, I think I definitely agree, too. Uh, I think as a, a country that has so many vaccines now, we have enough of just Pfizer to cover our entire population. I think the next question to ask is, what do we do with our millions of doses of Moderna, of AstraZeneca, and even of are uh, other new vaccines coming out, such as Medicago that are in, in development. So when we have so many vaccines, what is our uh, role as a country in uh, distributing these to, to other places in the world that might need them? And how do you make those kind of decisions? But I definitely agree that uh, before there's too much work on everyone wanting to just focus on themselves and get a third dose or already uh, starting with boosters, because really what's the point in just creating boosters where 
in other parts of the world, just new variants are created because the vaccine just has not been addressed. Really interested from a global health perspective to see the decisions that are made and how this works out. I'm really optimistic uh, about uh, about humanity. Uh, but yeah, really great story, Tyler. Thanks for bringing this in today. And some beautiful thoughts from you, Abhinav. And that'll do it. And let's head into the interview. <laughs> medical degree from McMaster University, Dr. Carmine Simone completed his critical care medicine fellowship and thoracic surgery residency at the University of Toronto. Dr. Simone is an assistant professor in the Division of Thoracic Surgery, Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, and has worked at the provincial level to implement healthcare leadership projects. Presently, Dr. Simone is a thoracic surgeon in Michael Guerin Hospital, where he also serves as the interim vice president of clinical programs, Welcome to the Healthcare Hub podcast, our first physician, uh, Dr. Simone. Welcome and excited to have you on today. Oh, really excited to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, so uh, yeah, like what Abhinav said, we're really excited to start and to kick this thing off, we're going to go right back to the beginning of your career when you were heading into university for the first time. So uh, like Abhinav said, you studied at the University of Toronto, Mississauga for your undergrad and it was in pharmacology. So heading into that degree, did you know you wanted to go into medicine? And if so, did you know about the different roles that you that there were beyond a surgeon or beyond a physician heading into medicine? Like uh, that medical director, uh, vice president of clinical programs like you're in right now, did you have any of those aspirations or were you always just kind of wanting to be a doctor? Um, so that's actually a, a really uh, loaded question. So uh, I guess the first disclosure is absolutely not. I had no idea where I was going to wind up. And uh, definitely right now, if you told me when I was uh, 1995 or going into medical school, uh, you know, do you see yourself as VP? Absolutely not. I didn't even know what a VP was. Um, and really, when it comes to hospital governance, uh, that is one thing we do not get educated on in medical school or in residency. So all the leadership roles um, uh, were fortuitous. And I'll, I, we can go into that a little bit later. But so, no, I, I definitely didn't know about that. I guess uh, you want to go way back. So uh, when uh, I, I went into uh, pharmacology because I was really excited about pharmaceutical companies and I was excited about drug development. And in fact, I not only did my undergrad, I started in grad school and uh, was actually working towards a PhD when uh, I applied to medical school. And uh, I did in the background always think I was going to do medicine. I was very keen on doing medicine after my uh, graduate work. To be honest with you, I didn't have the marks to go into medical school from undergrad. So that wasn't in the cards. So even if I wanted to be a doctor, which I wasn't totally convinced of when I was an undergrad, there was no way I was going to get in. So I, uh, I then started my master's program at uh, the hospital for sick children. I started to do some pharmacology work there. And uh, to be honest, most of the work that I was doing was on drug development. In fact, we were working on a model to um, figure out pharmacokinetics of uh, drug use in pregnancy. So we were trying to come up with a model not to use animals, not to use in vivo, but come up with an in vitro model to look at drug development and drug kinetics across the placenta. So I thought I had a career pretty mapped out. I was going to be this uh, superstar in the pharmaceutical company. 
um, or the pharmaceutical industry. And then I quickly realized that that wasn't really for me. And uh, during my graduate uh, work, um, applied to medicine and, uh, and then went to McMaster to do medicine. So at the time, um, I was, again, convinced I was going to be a clinician and uh, maybe do academic medicine because I was very interested in research. But uh, again, as life would have it, I went into medicine and absolutely loved the clinical part. I loved being with patients. I loved uh, really connecting with uh, primary care. And I thought maybe surgery really loved my surgical rotations and, uh, and then applied and uh, went into uh, thoracic surgery. Um, so, I mean, from a medical school perspective, I guess to answer your question, I was a long winded answer, but uh, uh, no, I didn't anticipate what was going to happen. I was primarily focused on academic medicine and then during my residency really focused on all clinical medicine and policy. So with that, uh, during medical school, you went down the surgery route. So more specifically, thoracic surgery. What really led you to the specialty as you started to get fall in love with more of the clinical side? So uh, with um, my medical school and uh, with everyone, obviously, you do your clinical rotations towards the end of your medical school training, and then you get exposed to various aspects of medicine. Um, one of the things that really sunk in pretty quickly, which is why I knew I picked the right path is pretty much every rotation I did. I loved, I loved psychiatry. I loved med family medicine. I loved, uh, gynecology. I loved, uh, surgery and, and medicine was great. Uh, but I was really attracted to the technical aspects of surgery. I was really, um, uh, drawn to, uh, the operating room. But what I loved about thoracic surgery in general was the oncology, the surgical oncology piece. So the cancer practice uh, really learned very quickly that those types of surgeries were different. You had a rapport with patients, you had a relationship with patients, long-term, five-year patients, six-year patient follow-ups. And that was very attractive to me. I, I, I really loved the technical aspect of orthopedics. That was really very exciting. I always really was excited to be in an orthopedic uh, operating room, still am actually, um, but it was a technical component. And then the patient aspect of it was less so. Uh, there is some longitudinal aspect to all surgery, but not like oncology where it's over many, many years. And uh, now that I've been at it for, oh my God, like 15, 17 years, can't believe that. But, you know, I have patients that have been with me for 15 years and that's, uh, that I love, that's what I, what attracted me to specifically thoracic surgery. The, so there was a very technical component, which was attractive. There was a very um, high level um, uh, technical uh, capacity that you needed to acquire and that was attractive. But then there was the other patient connection piece. And then during my residency, I was very fortunate uh, to um, then do quite a bit of elective work in critical care. I was actually, again, Anybody who says this is what I mapped out for the last 15 years, they're, they're full of it. That's not the case. So I, I didn't even think about going to medicine. Then I went to medicine. I didn't think about going to thoracic surgery. I went to thoracic surgery. And then critical care. Uh, I did a rotation at Sunnybrook uh, in the critical care. Absolutely adored it. Really loved the intensity of it. Liked working with really high acuity patients. The skill set, feeling very comfortable around patients that were very complex, uh, very comfortable around life-sustaining modalities. Like that was very exciting. 
also, as bad luck would have it, uh, you know, around 2003, when I was doing my fellowship, uh, SARS hits and then SARS-2 hits and uh, admitted one of my own faculty that got sick with SARS. And uh, then I realized, no, I this is really what I like to do. I really like to lean in, disaster management. Um, and so I did my fellowship. Then I applied and I did my fellowship in critical care. Um, and so again, life circumstances and also opportunities that present themselves. I, I think the biggest key is not to sound too uh, uh, philosophical, but uh, really keeping an open mind. And um, you'll never know that, like, pretty much every, if you really are a clinician and love being around patients and love the challenge any aspect that you're going to come across clinically is going to excite you. And then what really resonates with you and your skill set and your comfort zone, then you gravitate towards that. So I did critical care and thoracic surgery, which on the surface seem a little bit far apart, but in fact, uh, you know, makes it work really well. And, uh, and then I was fortunate to come across an opportunity uh, at, uh, at the time, Toronto East General Hospital, now called Michael Guerin Hospital, but Toronto East General Hospital, which, at the time had an intensive care unit that had no intensivists because back in 2000s, uh, the early 2000s was the transition between having intensive care units that had um, uh, coverage by intensive care doctors versus just physicians that had patients in intensive care. And so I started right out of residency with a leadership role. And would you mind coming and helping us create an intensive care unit with an intensive intensivist led model. So in 2004, when I finished my residency right out of fellowship, I was offered an opportunity to be in a leadership role. I guess two things could have happened. No, thanks. Uh, I'll come, I'll work, but I won't be leading the charge. And that would have probably taken me to a, a path. Uh, but then I was fortunate and I, I, I had the right backing. I had really good support uh, with the chief of medicine at the time, Ian Fraser, who was a big supporter. And, um, and I went ahead and took that leadership role. And that obviously created a different path and created different opportunities. Uh, but again, keeping an open mind. And uh, that was a little bit, you know, both <laughs> jumping headfirst into the pool and to the deep end of the pool. But uh, uh, I think... Um, I had the, the the right training. I had the right support, excellent uh, support around the organization and with uh, the leaders at the time. They were very, very supportive. And um, yeah, that's how I started my career. I started with a leadership role. Yeah, it's very interesting to see how you progressed through the organization uh, from T Toronto East General Hospital to and now being called Michael Guerin, and you've been there for a very long time. When we've talked to business people or business leaders in hospitals in past episodes, it seems like they jump around between hospitals a lot and there's a lot of moving around in that kind of industry. So I guess maybe when you're more tied to the clinical side of things, it might keep you around a little longer there. And uh, so, yeah, like you progressed from head of your division, medical director, and then you were surgeon in chief and now uh, vice president of clinical programs. So I guess one question I have after uh, talking to the, the people on the business side of things a lot is uh, how... How you bridge that gap between people who are on the business side of things and people who are on the clinical side of things? It seems like in your current role, you kind of do, you are that link between, you know, the governance structure and the executives at the hospital and those who are in all the different clinical areas in the hospital. So from a business perspective, we've talked to guests about how do you communicate with 
people on the clinical side and, you know, translate those business interests to things that align with their goals. So as someone who is that link between the clinical personnel and the business personnel, how do you function as a, as that link in that sense? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. You, you, just to go back on your first point, that, that is a very interesting observation, even for me, right? I've been at the same place for 17 years. And when I talk to someone, you know, my colleagues or friends of mine who, you know, a guy across the street who works for CIBC, um, you know, his resume is a list of who's who of the financial industry. The guy's worked for every major financial organization over the last 25 years. I've been at one place. And Clinically, um, there is an issue of the culture of medicine, which is a little bit more old fashioned when it comes to um, progression and governance. And so there is the issue of building credibility, building trust amongst your colleagues. Uh, there is this notion of understanding the culture, and that's what allows you to then govern um, or to be part of the governance structure. So there is that element, and hopefully that's going to change with your generation. I think uh, we are going to move a little bit more forward thinking where it comes to across more than just an organization, but system thinkers. And uh, that's what's exciting about the next kind of crop of leaders. We, we you know, There's more thinking of, around systems. And that's where I think we're going to have a little bit more alignment with other type of successful industries like the business or the financial world. Um, but crossing the divide, that's, that's tough. I have zero financial training. I have zero business and commerce training. I have zero uh, government and policy training. I have zero public communication or um, corporate communication and strategy training. I have none of that, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon. Um, you know, it's the mechanic who then winds up going to the head office at Honda and says, okay, now we got to come up with a strategic vision for the company. I know the insides and the outsides of the clinical practice uh, that's what I bring as a skill set and a strength, um, but it's very much about partnership and and what we call leadership dyads or leadership triads. I mean, the number is irrelevant, but leadership part uh, leadership uh, partnerships, and that's because we have to work in collaboration with somebody else. So. In you know the the, the clinical programs, the, this is where all the the, the nomenclature is different. But really, you have a clinical arm of governance, and then you have a operational arm, and then at some point there's convergence, and so you have division heads and department chiefs, but then you have managers and directors, mostly nurses, because again, strong clinicians. But then at some level there is, I'm partnering up with a guy who has a business degree, comes from consulting. We have a very uh, excellent v VP programs and VP program support. Uh, uh, one who's been with the organization for a long time, excellent uh, historical um, um, relationship with the hospital, but has a profound working knowledge of operations. And then we have another guy who comes from uh, his background. He was in Deloitte, he worked for KPMG, he worked for Accenture, you know, consulting background, uh, strong uh, policy and business background. So I'm paired, well, triad, I'm with these guys and we work very closely together. Why? Because I don't have their background and they're not clinicians. So. At, at some level, there is the need where you need to pair up because you just don't have that kind of training. And then you learn 
on the job. Not the best way sometimes, especially for me to pick up a budget. Also, not the best way for those guys to learn about what are the intricacies of patient flow through an operating room to a recovery room to the ward, and how do we merge the two then to make a pitch to either philanthropy or to an investor or to the ministry about investing into a particular program. And so that's currently the way it works. Now, there are opportunities, and I did do some extra training, uh, obviously, for professional development, but that's really in collaboration with the organization. And, you know, taking, taping, uh, taking a step back is how, how do we know which clinicians that we invest in that we know are going to create great partners for these other people, then we have good governance and good leaders and system thinkers. And that's the tricky part, right? Like we we identify up and coming leaders, we invest in them, you know, maybe you should take a couple of uh, leadership courses or maybe a couple of finance courses. Uh, there's a lot of professional development in terms of project management and public health and all these other things that will then present themselves later. And in the financial world, it's kind of the same thing, you know, get your MBA and you know what, we're gonna invest in you doing some other training or secondments. And so we're starting to use that same language within medicine to pull people out and get them trained. And there's opportunities, but when you're in a small organization, maybe there aren't those opportunities. And now we're starting to see at that level, people are moving amongst organizations and people now do have the same sort of culture as we do in the business world. But it is still coming from that area of, well, I'm not just abandoning you and hopping on the next opportunity. It really is, those are the ways that you flourish and grow your skill set. And then you have good leaders out there. It's number one in the business world, good, healthy competition. It raises the bar for everybody. So everybody wins. And then in healthcare, it is a system, you know, system players. If we have a good leader at North York, trust me, that's going to help us out too. Um, a, it raises the bar for us, but also when you have people that think of systems, then everybody benefits. And then our hope is, and that might be naive, I don't know, but uh, the hope is that once we get enough system thinkers and enough high level system thinking people that are, are trained, then everybody gets better. Um, but, you know, to answer your original question, that was a horribly long answer, but to answer your question is, uh, yeah, we, we, physicians tend to stay put for longer chunks of time, but that's because you need to, the way you develop those skills, you got to stick around. You, you, I don't get this training by saying, oh, I'm going to go to North York and then, you know, be there for a year and I'll learn how to do budgets. Oh, and then I'm going to go to Sunnybrook be there for a couple of years and learn how to do policy. No, the only way I get trusted with that kind of knowledge and paired up with that skill set is to be in one place. That's really, that's a real great answer, doctor. It comes up again and again in our podcast, the importance of uh, multidisciplinary teams at the high level to have that uh, successful interlock of the clinical side and the business side. On that, you played an important role in consulting on provincial meetings based on your approach to ICU, ICU care in the past. I mean, imagine the vast uh, amount of clinical experience you gained can really help inform best practices of care that can be applied to other surgery programs in Ontario or even Canada. So what would you say, uh, an interesting question I've thought about more, how do you help bridge that uh, gap or how do you facilitate knowledge transfer for the healthcare system at large? Or suppose you find some type of operational uh, or uh, surgical best practice that you think would benefit all of Canada, how do you bridge that gap in getting information uh, across our healthcare system? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent uh, question. So knowledge transfer is, uh, 
you know, is very uh, important with all kinds of research. And, uh, you know, all my clinician colleagues will always tell you that it's wonderful if you come up with a earth shattering discovery in medicine, but if it only works in your hospital and it cannot be translated anywhere else in the world, what have you really done? Um, so knowledge transfer is really, really, really important. And it's not just in medicine. I, I, would, I would argue that it's in everywhere. So when I first started, as I was mentioning, it was just at the point in time where intensive care units were transitioning from a, what was called an open model, where anybody could have patients, the critical care doctors being in charge. And so the ministry did have the foresight to say, you know what, for the people that are going through it and have done it successfully, they should really coach others on how to do it. And so the first approach was, for those of you who recognize you need the help, put in a proposal and we'll send out a coaching team. And so because we were pretty much one of the last centers in Toronto to do that again, and I was, was part of the, of the change management and the, the transition, I had, again, the luck of and the fortune of uh, being part of these coaching teams. And we went to Windsor uh, to help with uh, Windsor District Hospital. I helped uh, the team at um, uh, Oakville Trafalgar and also Markham Stouffville, now very high functioning, fantastic. Markham Stolo ICU is a fantastic unit. Um, and not because of me, obviously, because of, of the, what they've done, the people that are there. Um, so again, being able to translate and help and, uh, you know, your, your generation and again, your industries uh, are far more advanced when it comes to, you know, open sourcing and being very open with knowledge so that it's available and accessible. Medicine is far behind, right? Um, and so that was the first taste of, well, if we coach, now what happens? Again, helping Markham Stouffville back then, which was in the same position as us, not that we're elitist in any way. It's not like we were any better, but you know what? These are the failures that we had helping them. Now we have a great partner with a very high functioning unit. And so we all win and so do our patients. And then that just snowballs because then you create goodwill, you create people that are willing to listen. Uh, and then that moves on to knowledge translation and best practice with surgery, knowledge translation, best practice and early recovery pathways. But it also comes with a link to like a generational link, right? Um, I'm in that age, which is transitioning between a very patriarchal hierarchical type of medical system. And then the generation below us really will have no, no piece of that, right? And uh, open sourcing and having really free access and, uh, and uh, knowledge uh, translation and knowledge transfer to the community. I think that's, that's the, the, the real beauty of what we're going to see in the next 20 years. Not really um, guys like me, but people like you and your generation bridging between me in 20 years and the next generation and filling that gap of, we're not really in it to build legacy and build a one person show and historically a one man show, that's, that's, that's old. We're here to build systems. We all succeed, we're all gonna benefit. Like if, if you succeed, I succeed mentality, uh, our succeed. And that's really not 
cliche anymore. It really is borne out in fact. We know financially if the hospital beside us does better, we do better. We know financially if the house across the street, it looks better, my property value goes up. We know we have data to know that if people, I'm surrounded by people that are successful, I have a higher tendency to be successful. Like it, there is data to support that it's not just about me winning. It's that if I surround myself by winners, if I have that winning mentality, if the person across the street wins, if the hospital down the street wins, we all, all have benefit. Yeah, that's very interesting in terms of just using those insights from elsewhere to improve the healthcare system and everything. But uh, acting as the leader of the Department of Surgery in your hospital, you clearly have some impact on how surgeries are planned and managed and performed and are, are all over managing that. So I'd imagine you need to stay in the loop on new practices and research and innovations in surgery or, or even just surgery management as a key part of leading that department. So uh, I also know it's difficult for in the public health system to justify adopting new innovations when they don't come with direct hard cost savings on the healthcare system. It's hard to justify putting a lot of money into something when it's just focused on quality of care, for example. So uh, uh, I, I did read an article on you from 2015 about how you implemented a platform called Seamless MD that helps patients access information on surgery prep and recovery. So I was just wondering how you go about staying in the loop on new innovations that could help help your surgery uh, department and how you go about implementing them. So, uh, yeah, a great, uh, a great question. Not an easy answer, but um, so a couple of things, I think that is what a lot of, and it's not just healthcare. Uh, I would, I would say that uh, pretty much anyone that is in a niche uh, market, let's just say, and I may not be using the financial terms properly, but you, you know, I still have a clinical practice. And for me to stay relevant, I still need to be practicing and be, be relevant. Um, and the leaders recognize for us to really make good decisions, we need to have physicians and nurses and RTs and clinicians at the table. So number one is recognizing you need to have all the skills at the table and you need to have people that are relevant. And also the self-awareness to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm no longer relevant. You know, I'm now a senior guy that's not doing what's cutting edge. I need to bring that talent to the table. So that's number one, right? You gotta have the right people at the table informing the decision. Sometimes the right people aren't the people at the table and you need to have the self-awareness and recognition to say, we need new talent to inform us or we need external talent to tell us what's going on. And so we do have professional development. We have a bit of an advantage because we're a teaching center. And I think teaching keeps you relevant because it forces you to stay current. It forces you to respond to the requests and the needs of the learners. And they may bring to you to say, listen, this is what we've seen is happening in Detroit. So it allows you to stay relevant more. And there is the issue of it is a system. So if I don't have learners that are keeping me relevant, then I need to connect with my academic partners, with my urban or rural partners and community partners, or with the university partners, so that we then continue to have ongoing dialogues about what is current. The other thing is you have to have your eye on the prize, right? So it's not just about having the right people, making sure that you're current and relevant, but are you thinking about what's happening uh, you know, in the future? Who are the people that are telling you this is what's up and coming? And then really not ignoring opportunities. And I would say something like this. I see this as a, as a huge opportunity. You guys keep me relevant. You make me 
answer and 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 keep me uh, uh, keep me on my on my game. So it's it's opportunities like this, staying open and relevant to open and and available to anything that might come. Of the ten ideas we get, one sticks. Okay, no, not not ten, but uh, still, you got to listen to everything that comes to the table. So we constantly we're going through something called Project Imagine, which is a visioning exercise of uh, where healthcare is going to be in twenty years. You know, we are listening to experts from Sweden, experts from the National Health Service in England, uh, from people that are doing up and coming work in uh, in the states. Um, so. It's exercises like that that you need to do, and I would argue that that's happening everywhere. I mean, that's the business world. Obviously, is far ahead of us than when, when it comes to stuff like that. But but that is stuff that we continue to do. And then, how do we again? The knowledge translation is the best thing. So we'll have this person who comes and tells me what's happening in Sweden, what they envision to be in twenty years. Well, that's great, but if I just put that in my memory banks and I don't do anything about it, so then it's the change management and the actionability of all the stuff that we learn. That's where good governance and partnership and dyads and triads and governance will help, right? So we hear that. We have somebody who's an expert in clinical. We have somebody who's an expert in operations. And we say, okay, that was a great talk that, you know, I heard from Tyler. And he said that this is how we should really be doing breast surgery. So how do we implement that? Put pen to paper. Oh my God, this is going to cost $8 million. Uh, but it is what we think is going to be the standard of care. That's when we bring the business guy in and say, well, how are we going to do this? Well, this is not going to work if it's one organization who's going to pitch it for five people. But if we then say to our partners, this is what we should be doing. And Tyler tells us that this is how the standard of care is, you know, eight of us now putting a proposal in for $40 million to government because it's gonna affect 250,000 people over the next five years and improve patient experience, worker satisfaction, nursing retention, surgical outcomes, long-term survival. Well, hey, wait a minute, now we're talking about, this is a very different thing <laughs> and pretty hard for anybody to ignore that pitch. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the cycle. And some interventions are easy fixes. So there was one thing that we did, you probably read about, which was time to treat. Um, you know, we noticed that patients that had a bad x-ray or a worrisome x-ray, by the time they actually got to see a specialist was up to three or four months. And that was because there was no access to CT scans. Well, a doctor's perspective would be, okay, just give me more CT scans. But a, a human, somebody who does human engineering and somebody who does uh, operational excellence looks and says, your scheduling system is terrible. You're so inefficient that if you just change the booking system, we can put through 40% more people. What? 40%? So all we did is we had some guy come in. Frank is now on, on staff, but Frank was a, a gentleman who had an interest in operational excellence and again, human engineering and signage <laughs> literally invested maybe about $80 worth of signs and a new booking system. And we changed the wait time for patients from about 96 days to 17 days. Our investment was what 50 bucks. 
Oh, I'm sorry, and his time. Uh, so, okay, let's say $1,000. Uh, but the bottom line is no major capital investment, no major pitch to ministry or having to change and buy all kinds of equipment, hire 100 people. Uh, no, 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 no. So it's also about, again, having the right people at the table, recognizing that you know we're not perfect. In fact, we're terrible. So let's start with that premise and how do we fix what we're doing? Have a different mindset, constantly accept change, um, and that's how that's how good change happens. So some of it's simple, some of it's complex. If you have the right people, and if the message is is uh, you know righteous, you believe in the message. It's about patient care. It's about providing good care. We're thinking about the system. We're thinking about a community. That's how change happens. That's a, that's a really interesting story, Doctor. Just one small change led to such a reduction in wait times. Uh, you also talked a little bit about there there on how uh, the business world is moving so fast and sometimes you know pace how medicine can keep up. An interesting example of this was uh, talking to private healthcare space leaders, specifically GE Healthcare. We discussed the creation of the Edison Marketplace. It's an online store that would uh, have different applications or software packages that could be downloaded to CT scanners, MRIs, or x-rays. So for example, uh, a radiologist would be able to download a software package uh, that could then help to identify breast cancer or prioritize cases with possible collapsed lungs using uh, AI or software. So as a clinician, I wanted to get your perspective on uh, what are your thoughts on these different types of technologies becoming more involved in providing recommendations in, in, uh, in recommendations on decision-making? What is your perspective on this? It's a change that is coming, but uh, definitely needs to be uh, clinically validated with safe, patient safety put first. But I wanted to get your opinion on these kind of technologies. Um, so I, again, I, insofar as the specific technologies, it's hard for me to comment on, but I think um, my opinion is that I, is what I believe is truly exciting about what's going to happen in the next five or 10 years, right? Is that there's going to be far more uh, interconnectivity or cross pollination between the technology, business and finance, hospital and quite frankly, patients, like the consumer, much more patient-centered, patient-driven, consumer-driven um, healthcare. I think that's all a good thing. So I think all of these forces are finally really coming together to determine what the future of healthcare is gonna be and what quality and innovation and, um, and improvements is gonna look like. So to answer your question, uh, again, I think that's fantastic. I think the more access we have to innovation in any form is only going to be a good thing. The only problem is, it, well, I don't think it's a problem. I think the one thing we need to understand is we are in a publicly funded system, at least for now. I don't know what the future is, but I would argue that at least in my lifetime, it's going to be a publicly funded system. It's not an infinite resource. It's a finite resource. And we are stewards of that finite resource. So a little bit unlike a bank, which has you know, a budget or has whatever, and again, I may be misquoting and misrepresenting, but you know, their, their outlook and their thresholds are very different. We are a publicly funded finite, uh, and so we have a fiscal responsibility agenda. We are responsible to the taxpayer. So we are forced to always think about, we have $5 
and the 10 of you come together and say, thank you. You all 10 of you have fantastic ideas. They're brilliant. And each one of them has value and we see is going to have impact on our patients. But I got $5. So help me understand. That's where I still think is a bit of a, a miss. That's where we're missing in healthcare. Because the radiologist will come to me and say, I have an idea about buying this program and the CT scanner. It's going to make throughput 40% more efficient and it's going to help 10 times more patients. Fantastic. But I have about 10 of those. I would argue 50 of those. So now we have to come up with a ranking and, uh, and, be, and that's where we have to talk about systems and talk about having more partners. Um, and so that's, I guess, the only issue is that uh, us, like the British, that's why we always look to the, you know, the NHS for some leadership and guidance and thinking about how do you guys navigate these things. You know, we still are, I think, doing a good job for us to do a great job. We have to be able to then look to our innovation partners and our technology partners and our business partners to say, okay, you need to help us understand how do we scale this? How do we implement this in a publicly funded system that needs to be fiscally responsible and ultimately responsible to the taxpayer? So how do we how do we do that? I don't have an answer to that quite yet. I'm still struggling with that with myself. Uh, but I'll tell you right now, you know, I have at least three or four files on my desk that I can tell you I can't afford, but there is no doubt in anybody's mind it's the right thing to do for patients. But wh- how do I get to that next level? I'm still struggling with that. I don't know the answer. Would you have time for one more? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So I guess uh, with regards to uh, the pandemic, obviously that was that hit hard on on any hospital out there, but specifically in surgery caused a huge backlog in surgeries that might last for months, years on end, who knows, big impact of the pandemic there. And I think one thing that came from the pandemic in a positive way was uh, more adoption of technology for, uh, you know, digital health, telehealth, uh, remote patient monitoring, those sorts of things. And as you just brought up, those types of technologies could be a pathway to lowering those wait times. Do you feel like uh, the digital health movement going forward is going to be play a big role in kind of combating that backlog that's been built up during the pandemic? Or is there something else that's going to be a very key player in breaking down that backlog? Yeah, uh, so very timely uh, question. So uh, I guess the short answer is yes. Uh, obviously, I think um, d- the the digital health. I mean, that's a, that's a broad category. You know, virtual care, virtual health, digital health is a big category. Uh, I think uh, specifically with surgery, most of the change has been to this. You know, virtual meetings uh, and vir- virtual assessment of patients. And that's been very interesting, especially in our community, because we have a very diverse community. Uh, We have one of the highest uh, proportion of patients that live below the poverty line. Um, We have about 80 uh, languages that are represented within our catchment area. We have the highest number of patients that are new uh, to Canada, so uh, first-generation immigrants. Um, And we have a significant uh, refugee um, uh, population uh, from our original um, when that happened before the pandemic, when we, when we accepted all the refugees from overseas, and we have a significant number over fifteen, over thousand uh, five hundred, in our catchment, so that's a very different patient population. And what we learned from COVID, when we said we have this beautiful online tool for you to be able to book your your appointments, well, eighty percent of those patients don't have computers. Uh, 
never mind the internet, never mind data plans on their phone, uh, never mind learn, knowing how to speak English. So that's great that you came up with that system. And then by the way, who was able to navigate that? <laughs> Postal codes that had no issues <laughs> with accessing computers and, 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 dig, and digital care. So digital care or digital healthcare can do two things. It can facilitate access to care, but it can facilitate access to care for people who know how to use digital tech, digital. Um, so it can empower, or what we learned is it can make the divide even more. So I think the challenge for me, and I have to own this, is how do I ensure equity? How do I ensure that the populations we failed, that we know we failed during the pandemic, those marginalized communities, those communities that don't have access, the elderly, how do we make sure that when we ramp things up, it's proportionate to them as well? Actually, I would argue disproportionately favor them because they were disproportionately disadvantaged during COVID. So to make it fair, they should actually have more access moving forward. And how is technology going to help me with that? I'm looking at you guys to help me with that, but the you know that's where does technology and AI help inform some decisions about hey that community there didn't get vaccinated, didn't use the technology drivers that we had, so now it's going to inform my decision to invest in mobile units to go out and use door to door, good old fashioned door to door, knocking on the door to make sure people get vaccinated and get their healthcare, and invest more and more in digital health. So there's the patient piece, which I'm still struggling with, to be completely honest with you, I don't have a good answer, but I do know I do know what the output has to be. The output has to be whatever we come up with has to help people that live in Leaside, just as much, oh, well, actually, I mean, in a, I don't wanna target anybody, I'm not, I don't have anything against uh, uh, anyone, but I'm saying, uh, you know, a postal code that has um, an average income of, you know, 500,000 and an average house um, a value of greater than a million, that postal code area has to be as equally advantaged and have access to our patients in Thorncliffe Park, you know, with the average income of less than the poverty line. That should be, to our previous discussion, a publicly funded, you know, healthcare dollar funded system should treat both of those people the same and they should have the same access. So that's the challenge. I don't have an answer. But whatever it is in terms of virtual care, Zoom, Medio, whatever it is, it's got to help both of those people. But then there's the surgeon piece. So, okay, but surgery, what, the backlog of surgery, well, that is a tough one because most of the backlog is based on human resource. It's not because I don't have enough technology in the OR. It's not because I don't have enough, um, you know, instruments and robots because I can't get to those patients because I don't have enough humans. <laughs> I don't have enough nursing staff. I don't have enough um, support staff, physiotherapists, RTs. I could argue I probably have enough surgeons, maybe a little bit more, but the surgeons is the easy part. I'm here. <laughs> so if I have more nurses to help me in the operating room, I can do more cases. If I had more family physicians that are seeing patients that get patients worked up that then wind up having a diagnosis, I could operate more. It's the it's that human piece that I still haven't been able to rack in my head and reconcile. So yeah, there are going to be some enablers. Yes, there's going to be some technology that we need to invest in to be able to help get this back, this machine back and running. 
But the two pieces that I'm still struggling with, I know I'm not answering your question. I'm actually asking more questions, but the two pieces that I'm struggling with is the patient piece. I'm afraid technology has just showed how really bad we are at making it accessible. And the technology piece for the OR, I still need humans. And I haven't been able to reconcile that piece. I'm just gonna put one other thing out there. One, when we came up with uh, looking for first vaccines, access to first vaccines, we came up with this platform and this ability for patients to use online access. And then if they didn't have an online access, we had a multilingual um, phone line for them to be able to access. When we still looked at then all the postal codes um, uh, at about the 30% vaccination rate, the top three postal codes, and this was designed to be able to create access Top three postal codes were in mostly white, affluent postal codes, top three. What does that tell you? Well, when you have a very white, male, rich group build on a system that was designed historically by white, rich people, even if you try to make it as accessible as possible, <laughs> it's still built on a fundamentally you know, racist, very uh, male dominated system. So we got to call that out too. Like there's got to be some real fundamental changes in healthcare. And we need to recognize that it is not, and I'm part of it, it is not an accessible, you know, kumbaya, everybody holding hands, loving play. It is. It wasn't built and designed that way. We need to recognize it. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be torn down and started from scratch. And I think that's where the excitement of technology comes in because technology, if it's done right, it's done by and informed by the right people can help us also navigate those things, those inequities, those fundamental things that exist in our system that are very unjust to certain communities, certain patient populations, patients that are uneducated, patients that don't have access to technology. And it's hard to come, and I don't have the mental capacity to figure out how does technology help me deal with people that don't have technology? I'm looking to you guys to help me with that. Those are, those are all fantastic points. Uh, on the show, we could continuously talk about digital health, but equally important, just as important as implementing that digital health, you need to do health technology assessment at a uh, at the demographic level. But uh, as a physician leader, we're so grateful that you are uh, cognizant of these kind of biases that might exist in healthcare. That's huge. Uh, you know, traditionally, healthcare might be a place where change is difficult to make. And uh, as a leader, it seems like you're very open to innovation and, uh, and just changes happening. And that's awesome. Uh, this is a really great episode. I'm sure lots of people want to hear this. Thank you so much for joining us on the Healthcare Hub podcast today. Well, it was a privilege. Thank you so much for, for asking me to join. And that'll do it for this episode of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Simone for joining us today. And uh, we will see you in the next one.